Hey, podcast listeners, Ben Wittes here with a kind of cool announcement. You may have noticed that the Lawfare podcast has been running increasingly frequently, that we are having a whole lot of new content from a wild diversity of people. Well, today we are making it official. The Lawfare podcast is from here on in daily, at least five days a week. We will be changing our schedule to run Monday through Friday, at least on work days. And that means that our normal Saturday episode will shift back to Friday. We are institutionalizing disinformation Thursday. The Arbiters of Truth series will become, at least through the end of the campaign, a permanent feature of Lawfare. And we will have more stuff from me, from David Priest, from Margaret Taylor, from Scott Anderson, from Quinta Jurassic. So bring us in every day. One other thing about this, it's expensive to do it. And so, you know, we've made a point of not asking for contributions during COVID-19. But if you value what we're doing and you want to support the Lawfare podcast, go to the Lawfare support page and make a monthly contribution or a one-time contribution. This is a big lift for us and uh, we're excited to do it. And we hope you are excited to listen. Corruption was on everyone's minds and the loss of this upcoming election for Malaysia, it wasn't just you know, losing an election for Najib Razak, it, it would also mean potential jail time and exceptional charges against him. So there, the stakes are extremely high, um, but the Anti-Fake News Act is not necessarily surprising. From a lot of the people I spoke with in civil society, it was almost expected. Like they, of course they were, you know, outraged at it, but it was just another tool in the toolkit for the government to use against dissent. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 28th, 2020. It's another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation. This week, Evelyn Dweck and I spoke with Gabrielle Lim, a researcher with the Technology and Social Change Research Project at the Harvard Kennedy School's Shorenstein Center, and a fellow with Citizen Lab. She's just released a new report with Data and Society on the fascinating story of a Malaysian law ostensibly aimed at stamping out disinformation. The Anti-Fake News Act, passed in 2018, criminalized the creation and dissemination of what the Malaysian government referred to as fake news. After a new government came into power following the country's 2018 elections, the law was quickly repealed. But the story of how Malaysia's ruling party passed the act, and how Malaysian civil society pushed back against it, is a useful case study on how illiberal governments can use the language of countering disinformation to clamp down on free expression, and how the way that democratic governments talk about disinformation has global effects. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 28th. Gabrielle Lim on the life and death of Malaysia's Anti-Fake News Act. 
So we wanted to talk to you about a recent report that you wrote for Data and Society on the life and death of Malaysia's Anti-Fake News Act. Um, but before we actually dig into that report itself, I want to make the case for why our listeners should really care about this. Um, it's maybe not obvious why our audience, which I think it's fair to say is mostly not living in Malaysia, um, <laughs> should be interested in this report. And so for me, there were three main reasons. First, it's a fascinating case study in the pitfalls of government regulation of disinformation generally. Um, um, second, it has lessons for how to combat dangerous rhetoric around disinformation from various actors. Um, and third, I think it really highlights the sort of global dynamics of this issue and the ways in which um, how disinformation is talked about in the West can really have global ramifications. So before we dig in and expand on each of those, do you think that's a fair representation of sort of the findings in your report? And if you had to give a short pitch of why people outside Malaysia and our listeners should care about this, um, which I mean, you wrote the report in English, so I'm guessing you think that they should. Um, what would your pitch be? Yeah, definitely. I think since 2016, the term fake news has become very, very popular. Um, I was listening to your episode with Craig Silverman, who coined the term fake news. Um, why I think people should actually care about the Malaysian anti-fake news law, the now repealed um, AF AFNA is that it's pretty emblematic of what we see across the globe. It's not just Malaysia, Singapore, Russia, China, Thailand, Cambodia, Nigeria now, and I think South Africa are just among a handful of countries that are also considering their own anti-fake news laws. They might call it something else, but in essence, that's what they're capitalizing on. They are jumping on the rhetoric and fears of disinformation, influence ops, and fake news in order to pass some pretty problematic legislation, let's just call it that, um, that ostensibly would allow for selective censorship. So why I think this is important is because I think often um, as Western scholars living in the United States, we're pretty insulated from what happens out in the global South. Um, and the rhetoric that we use to gain traction by making everything sound as if it has a national security threat to it has actually some pretty dangerous implications for the rest of the world. Especially, I think, in the United States, uh, we like to use the term weaponize. I feel like it is the word of the year, if not of the last few years. You know, we like to say uh, social media has been weaponized by such and such bad actor. It is a threat to democracy. It is a threat to public order. It is a threat to democratic participation. Um, however, we take that rhetoric and it gets used overseas by, you know, what we, what we might want to call authoritarian leaning governments to pass some, like I said, pretty problematic legislation. And so the Malaysia case study, I think, kind of embodies what's happening uh, as a global trend. So I'll just pause to say that I'm 100% aware of the irony of the fact that this is a the Lawfare podcast and our tagline is hard national security choices. <laughs> so with that on the table. <laughs> um, yeah. So first off, so I guess let, let's dig into the report itself now that we sort of have that background. So as you say, you're looking at the background to the passage of Malaysia's Anti-Fake News Act, which criminalized the dissemination of fake news and then also its repeal. So to sort of start yeah. at the beginning, what did this law do and how did it come to be passed? I also think it might be useful to, um, as you say, since this the trend you're discussing has to do with authoritarian and authoritarian lending governments to give listeners a sense of where the Malaysian government stood at the time in terms of freedom of expression. 
Yeah, so Malaysia has a pretty long history of censorship and media control uh, from political parties and the government. And so this was coming really at the heels of the revelations of the 1MDB financial scandal, uh, which implicated at the time the Prime Minister Najib Razak in hundreds of millions of dollars um, that were allegedly, the trial is still ongoing, allegedly stolen from a um, government fund. And so this was coming on the heels of that. It was coming on the heels of widespread corruption that was being made uh, widely known across mainstream media as well, but primarily on social media and independent online media. So the AFNA, the Anti-Fake News Act, in my report, basically it's situated in a pretty contested political space where corruption was on everyone's minds and the loss of this upcoming election for Malaysia, it wasn't just you know losing an election for Najib Razak, it, it would also mean potential jail time and very, very egregious charge, like exceptional charges against him. So there, the stakes are extremely high. Um, but the Anti-Fake News Act is not necessarily surprising. Um, from a lot of the people I spoke with in civil society, it was almost expected. Like they, of course, they were, you know, outraged at it, but it was just another tool in the toolkit for the government to use against uh, dissent. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit more about the act itself? What did it do? What was criminalized? Um, and how, how did it work? Yeah, so what made it really problematic was that fake news is really ill-defined. Like, it's already ill-defined. I don't think researchers or journalists or pundits can even agree on what fake news means. Um, and I know a lot of people always say, oh, I hate using the term fake news, but I'm telling you, the Malaysian government itself is using the term fake news. So the definition was incredibly vague. It basically covered any information that is partly false or wholly false. So it didn't even have to be completely false. It was just partly false. Um, and it encompassed everything from text, visuals, audio, anything. Uh, so I have, a, I have a line from the, the act pulled up and it actually says, Anything that is wholly or partly false, whether in the form of features, visuals, or audio recordings, or in any other form capable of suggesting words or ideas. <laughs> so they really covered their bases. Capable of suggesting ideas. My goodness. Yes. yes. So anything under that, that is wholly or partly false. So it's a pretty broad stroke, um, as you can imagine. And then on top of that, it criminalized the creation and dissemination. So if you accidentally shared it, would that mean that you could go to jail? And so it was so vague. And then on top of that, you could go to jail for it. Um, I think imprisonment of up to six years, court-ordered apology, financial penalties, I think, of up to 500,000 ringgit, which I think is approximately 100,000 USD. And so, yeah, it it had everything in there. And I think the financial penalties could technically be indefinite. I think they had a provision where if you did not take down the content, uh, the offending content, you could be charged uh, a daily penalty. So that could keep racking up. So that's a extraordinarily broad law as you describe it. I mean, so you talked about the sort of this rhetoric of national security earlier. And you write in the report about how the ruling coalition that passed this law was securitizing the threat of fake news. So talk a little bit about that, sort of mm -hmm. how did they do that? Yeah, for sure. 
So Malaysia is basically all mainstream media in Malaysia is either owned or influenced by a political party, which at the time were all part of the ruling coalition, Barisan Nasional. And what they were able to do uh, is essentially push three very, very important narratives to help securitize, i.e. frame fake news as a national security threat or a threat to public order that warranted exceptional measures. Um, and so the narratives they were able to push through mainstream media, through their own social media outlets, was that fake news is not only a threat to national security and public order, but that the upcoming election will be inundated with fake news and that it will primarily be carried over the internet on social media. So already by doing this, they're sowing confusion over what people are consuming on the internet already because they know that that's where the majority of of dissent and criticism takes place. It's not on the mainstream news outlets. It's on social media. It's on WhatsApp. It's on Facebook. And so I think by doing this, they're able to to show or at least attempt to show that fake news is not just a threat, but it will be coming in the form of social media posts. Great. So as you say, this act was passed in the lead up to an election. It was extremely broad. It was justified by a securitization kind of narrative. Was the act actually used? Was the nightmare, did the nightmare scenario come true? No, it didn't because <laughs> really quickly after they lost the election in probably one of the most shocking victories in definitely in Malaysia, it, uh, it overturned six, over 60 years of rule by the, uh, by Barisan Nasional. So it was never used. Uh, it was threatened to be used. There were reports that they had opened investigations into, I think, Mahathir and maybe a couple others under the Anti-Fake News Act, but those were never materialized into actual arrests or charges being laid. But yeah, so the uh, the election essentially happened. Um, the co- the Barisan National lost power. And then one of the first things the new coalition did was put in a repeal. And so that's where the second part of my research really focused on was, well, how how was the appeal? How did the repeal happen? And why was civil society and opposition politicians at the time able to do this. Okay, so let's move on to that more sort of happy side of this story then. Um, <laughs> tell us about the counter-securitization efforts that you describe that led to the repeal of the law after the election. Yeah, so I think counter-securitization is an interesting topic. Not a ton has been written about it, um, but it's essentially how how do we reverse the securitization? If something has been framed as a national security threat or, you know, an existential threat, um, how does that get reversed? And in the case of Malaysia with the Anti-Fake News Act, it was partially luck that the Barisan Nasional lost the election, but I think there were also some pretty key strategies that were employed by civil society and um, opposition politicians at the time. So. One thing I noticed with my interviews and with what I saw online was that people had, yes, they, I think there was some self-censorship going on, but in general, people were very open with their disdain for the government at the time and for the law. One of the interviewees basically said, you know, we seem to have crossed some kind of Rubicon. People stopped being afraid of speaking out as much. Um, and so what I found was, you know, there was constant criticism of the Anti-Fake News Act. They were, there were op-eds, people went on radio and TV and spoke about it. They were 
more than willing to provide comments to media outlets, that uh, foreign and domestic media outlets. And the second thing I've also found was that there was rapid response coordination between civil society. You know, I think within weeks of uh, the Anti-Fake News Act being mentioned, there was very public NGO statements. There was a joint statement, um, and this was being pushed to legislators. And they had a pretty broad coalition. It wasn't just activists who focus on freedom of expression. It was also activists from um, transparency and accountability, um, activists who were focusing on corruption. So it was a pretty broad coalition in that sense. And I think what really helped was all of this, they had pretty good information sharing with opposition parties. So they were able to bring the joint statement, for example, um, or any legal analyses and take this to opposition parties. Um, And I think that information sharing really helped in having a consistent narrative to counter the ruling coalition's uh, national security narrative. And I think very importantly was the use of strategic attack narratives. You know, it wasn't, yes, they did say that the Anti-Fake News Act would be a threat to expression, but they also claimed that it would be a, a cover-up for corruption, a cover-up for the 1MDB financial scandal. And that was a huge deal for Malaysians at the time. You know, when we talk about corruption, that that is something that's endemic uh, to the country. Um, and so I think the use of these attack narratives, the information sharing, the rapid response, all of this helped basically put a pretty good counter-narrative to what Darisan National was saying, so that when the repeal was tabled and took place, there wasn't as much uh, backlash um, when I was monitoring some of the media outlets during that time and the Anti-Fake News Act was repealed. There was relatively little pushback, you know, I think had Barisa National made a better case for why we why they needed this law, there would have been something from civil society saying, well, OK, maybe, you know, fake news, disinformation are problems. Uh, maybe we should look at this more. But there was almost zero uh, pushback when the repeal happened. So one of the things you talk about, which is really interesting, is that the counter-securitization efforts don't deny that disinformation is a problem or underplay the threat of, you know, mm-hmm. what we're now calling fake news. So how how did they walk that line of sort of both acknowledging the threat of disinformation while also opposing the law? Yeah, it's a really good question. I And I bring this up in the report as well. Um, with my interviews, you know, they... Most of them admit that it is an issue. They themselves have been targeted with disinformation and influence ops. They've also been targeted with harassment and cyber troopers. So it is a problem. um, But I think for them, the solution being proposed was not the right answer. Um, And so they were much more willing to entertain other ideas outside of legislation or regulation. Um, So a lot of a lot of the interviewees I spoke with talked about, you know, better education, media literacy, um, wanting the platforms themselves to step in instead. So it's it's definitely a fine line. I think I think it's a hard one for everyone to follow as well, and not just Malaysia. I think in the United States as well, we're constantly navigating the tension between, you know, government overreach and the harms and impact of influence ops and media manipulation. So that that is not um, isolated to Malaysia or other countries. Um, but yeah, it's it's a tough one. So yeah, so you mentioned cyber troopers. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk about what that is and sort of how uh, many Malaysians understand uh, the role of those folks online? 
Yeah, cyber troopers is such a fun word. I love that word. I was doing, I was trying to find, you know, when was the first time that word was used in Malaysia? I think I found like blog posts dating back to 2009, 2010, uh, where people were already calling out cyber troopers. <laughs> so the, the phenomenon of like large groups of trolls, uh, paid or unpaid gathering to, you know, push a certain narrative or idea is definitely not new. I feel like since the internet was a thing that has always like existed. And for Malaysians, cyber troopers are almost commonplace. Like it's, it's just part of daily political life. They have a pretty broad definition of it. It could be paid, they could be unpaid, they could just be diehard fans, you know, keyboard warriors, some might say. Um, but a lot of the interviews I spoke with were pretty dismissive of them. You know, they, they were like, oh, yeah, cyber troopers, those guys. What about them? <laughs> so it's it's kind of interesting how they were, they were so dismissive, whereas I think in the United States, when we think of, you know, paid trolls and disinformation operations, we have a very visceral gut reaction to it. Whereas when I interviewed Malaysians, often they wouldn't even bring it up until I asked them about it because they they don't necessarily associate it with disinformation or fake news right off the bat because it's it's been so normalized. Yeah, and one amazing example that you talk about in your report here of that is the Queen of Dragons. Um, could you like <sighs> unpack that example? And who is the Queen of Dragons? Oh my goodness, the Queen of Dragons. Uh, I, w- I can't remember her real name. But yeah, she had been written about, I think, by a couple of media outlets, domestic and foreign. Uh, she essentially claimed that she was working at the behest of Varisa National and that she had commanded thousands of online accounts um, pushing a certain narrative. Um, but the funny thing about her is I think she switched sides and she's like, <laughs> she's now working for, well, the coalition has fallen, but um, she's working for the opposition party um, at the time of the election. So it's, yeah, cyber troopers are a real thing. They exist. Their impact, uh, debatable, you know. I think that's where the issue of, you know, how do we address impact? And cyber troopers are just such a normal phenomenon in Malaysian life that it's not it's not spoken about the way we speak about it in the US at least. Yeah, I think this is such a fascinating and interesting point because the link between sort of volume of this kind of activity and effects is notoriously hard to demonstrate or to to show any evidence of. Um, But we are seeing this increasingly militaristic discourse around it that kind of, it it feeds into that kind of hypodermic needle theory of propaganda or, or information operations, where if you just have enough of this stuff, it's going to change outcomes. And so it's really interesting to hear that in the context of a place like Malaysia, where this is definitely a problem, um, the the discourse around it is is different, um, and it's kind of normalised in a way that perhaps it's it's not in other places. How does the militarization of the way that we talk about this and and, and things like cyber troopers feed into that securitization and counter securitization dynamic mm-hmm. that you were observing? Yeah, it's. Uh... It's a tough one. I think there is a general feeling, at least in the U.S., that for anything to have importance, it needs to be elevated to the level of national security. (laughs) So I remember reading, I think it was an article by, I want to say Stephen Pomper and Robert Malley, where they warn about, you know, lumping pandemic response as a national security issue. And they basically criticize the idea that for anything to be important, it has to be a matter of national security. 
And so I think that's also true with disinformation. Um, it is important. It should be addressed. Should it be part of national security? I don't know. I think we should have an honest conversation about whether or not that is <laughs> actually useful. And so I think, yeah, like the word weaponize is used every day when people talk about information ops. Um, practically everything is a weapon now. And I think that gets dangerous because anything that can be weaponized can also be securitized. And when that happens, government overreach is a very real possibility. Um, so we have to be careful when we use the language of security. You know, it's, there's implications for what happens afterwards. So you you also describe that there was this dynamic uh, during the in Malaysia around the time that this law was being uh, debated and passed, where distrust in media among Malaysians kind of worked out as a plus, um, <laughs> which is fascinating because I think uh, at least in the West there's a lot of discussion about how the decline of trust in media is a yeah. real problem when it comes to disinformation and misinformation. But you describe it as sort of helpful to counter securitization. So can you just talk us through that? Yeah, it's yeah, it's kind of the opposite of the United States where we talk about how do we shore up our institutions so that people go back to mainstream media where trusted information can be found. Unfortunately for a lot of countries like Malaysia where mainstream media is heavily controlled, influenced or bought out by uh the ruling government, that's tricky. You know, do you want people to only watch like three news channels that are run by the ruling political party, you know? Um, so in Malaysia, distrust in mainstream news outlets had, had been ongoing for quite some time, um, for several years at least. And so I think people, you know, if you don't trust the media, they moved elsewhere. They looked online. They looked for independent news outlets. They looked to their friends and family. Um, so WhatsApp, for example, is a big platform in Malaysia, especially when it comes to the dissemination of news. For good or for bad, like I'm not saying that it's it's inherently good. It's just a different source of information, and in this case, it was used to disseminate critical content um, and dissent and help people organize and mobilize against the ruling coalition at the time. So I think yeah, it makes for an interesting case of where do we want to shore up trust in institutions and why? Um, and we shouldn't we shouldn't assume that mainstream media is always one of the good guys. And so I think, yeah, we, we ha really have to reevaluate our assumptions. Um, and also, I think it points to how important trust is in general. I think when, when we talk about disinformation, we tend to think of it as a supply side problem. You know, if, if we just cut off the supply of disinformation, if Facebook could just eradicate all the disinformation, then we'd be okay. But that's <laughs> clearly not true. You know, if, if your general population is has very strong misgivings about mainstream media, they're going to look elsewhere. You know, if not Facebook, if not Twitter, they might go on WhatsApp, Telegram, Discord. Um, there will be other avenues. So I think it's an interesting case of where do people shift their, their news consumption when their trust goes down? Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to pull out a little bit more something that was sort of implicit in what you were just saying. And there's this counterintuitive uh, idea that distrust in media is helpful, but there's also this counterintuitive idea that it's exactly the kind of out of controlness of social media um, that both causes disinformation and is the cause of so much anxiety here at the moment, um, but was actually really helpful in fighting um, the, the fake news law and the securitization um, in Malaysia. Um, and it sort of gets to this point 
point where it's really hard to tell whether social media and the internet is a net good or a net sort of harmful force. And in particular, in a place like Malaysia, where, you know, there is still sort of, I mean, the uh, Arab Spring view of the internet is definitely, um, you know, the optimistic view of it as an inherently democratizing uh, force is is definitely not not so much in favor anymore. But that there is still that potential for it to be an important place for public discourse. So, do you sort of have a view on how the landscape and sort of public discourse has been? transformed by social media more generally in Malaysia as a result of your research? I mean, I'm, I'm not asking you to come down on like, has it been net good or net bad? But like, <laughs> what's your kind of view on that? Oh, that is a tough call. Hmm. I think it's been a net good in that it's allowed for alternative voices that otherwise would never have seen the light of day in Malaysia. Um, but this began prior to social media, you know, it it began with blogs. Like Malaysia had a very strong blogging community um, way before social media took root. So I think we have to think of it as a whole, not just Facebook and Twitter, but also the internet writ large and what it's done. But that may shift, you know? I think the internet's always going to be a contested space and it's always going to have different actors and different players trying to get in and control the flow of information. So we'll see, you know, if you, if anyone's been following Malaysian politics, they've seen the coalition that won, Pakatan Harapan, who won the coalition in um, 2018, they have essentially disintegrated and the old ruling class is back. So moving forward, we'll see uh, whether or not the internet can still be a force for good. I, I, I'm, po- I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. <laughs> It's always nice to hear optimism. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so you mentioned there's obviously been a rec- very recent political developments in Malaysia that in some ways seem to kind of have rolled back the 2018 election. Can you just talk us through that for listeners who might not be familiar? Yeah, so uh, in 2018, when the election happened, I think a lot of it I mean, there's been a lot of speculation about why Pakatan Harapan was able to win, but I think a lot of it was just, it was a tacit coalition, essentially, with the sole purpose of taking down Najib and Barisan Nasional. Um, Unfortunately, the coalition that won was pretty weak. There was already existing fractures between the various political parties that made up the coalition. And I think those really came to light in recent months, especially the ongoing uh, power struggle between Mahathir and his ex-protege Anwar. So it's hard when you have a tacit coalition like this with the sole purpose of taking down one person, the governance that happens afterwards gets very tricky and yeah so it's I think there's gonna there might be a rollback of um freedom of expression uh of censorship that's definitely a real possibility we'll see what happens uh I think it's still quite early so we'll have to wait and see but already you know there's been um arrests and investigations under different laws you know they didn't really need the anti-fake news act actually (laughs) they had existing laws Um, So the Communications and Multimedia Act, for example, has been used uh, heavily um, in the last few years, um, you know, to criminalize everything from criticizing royalty, for example, um, to spreading uh, allegedly false information about coronavirus. So 
the sad thing is even though the Anti-Fake News Act was repealed, the government still had other means to control information. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that that was actually going to be my next question was whether now that some of the sort of old familiar faces are back in power, whether there's any whether you saw any chance of the AFNA being reintroduced or, or whether, you know, they have enough power to control freedom of expression um, as is, and it's sort of not needed. There's definitely talk whether or not that talk will materialize into anything more. We'll see because actually the, the communications and multimedia act is far more broad in terms of what it allows the government to do. So, you know, something that an interviewee brought up to me, about the Anti-Fake News Act, for example, was if you are, you know, arrested for allegedly posting something that's false, well, you can try to prove that, you know, the courts then have to prove that what you're saying is false. (laughs) And so that can be difficult if if your claims are actually true, and the government might not want to engage with you, because then they would have to provide their own evidence that what you're saying is false, um, which might be a protracted battle that the government doesn't want to get into. Whereas the Communications and Multimedia Act is so much more vague. I think the provision under that is that anything that is could be offensive or hurts public harmony is criminalized. So that is so subjective and so broad, and you don't really need to prove very much that that allows for far more control than the Anti-Fake News Act ever would have had. Okay, so that raises the really interesting question of then why did they pass this law or need this law? Um, and I wonder whether part of it was t- to do with the the role that Western narratives played in sort of legitimizing this law in particular, as opposed to prior existing laws that kind of went to the same thing. Um, so l- let's start by talking about what those Western narratives were and how they were used in Malaysia. And then maybe you could comment on whether you think that that's part of why the government chose to use this law, pass this law and, and, try- and use that as opposed to previously existing legislation. Yeah, oh, that is, hmm, I can only take a stab at this. I think part of it was One, the Communications and Multimedia Act had been used so often and has been already, it had been criticized so often already, they might have been looking for a new tool. This is something I found, for example, the Sedition Act. It used to be that the Sedition Act was the go-to tool to silence dissent. Once the Sedition Act became unpopular, they then switched over to the Communications and Multimedia Act. Maybe they could have been anticipating, okay, well, once the CMA gets too politically unpopular, we can then switch over to a new act. So that's something I thought about when I was writing up this report. You know, why would you actually go to all the trouble of securitizing fake news, passing pretty unpopular legislation, if you really couldn't use it or if if it, it had so much political backlash? So it could have been, yeah, they were just trying to think of another tool for when old ones ran out, something else to add to their back pocket. It could also have been something I thought about, which I mean, I can't prove, but the securitizing moves might in themselves have been useful for the government, you know, in framing social media as a sea of false information and harmful rhetoric, you know, to paint WhatsApp, Facebook and Twitter as, you know, everything on there is false. Don't trust anything you see on Facebook. 
because again, like I said, that's where a lot of the criticism of the government was uh, was taking place. So yeah, the government may have found use in that. To be honest, though, it's I I can't say for, for certain why. I think sometimes we put too much, uh, we give governments too much credit. <laughs> uh, there's a level of incompetence, I would say, that sometimes happens um, where I don't know if they knew what they were doing. <laughs> so that last point about the threat of social media in particular is is really interesting, and I think that that's where the Western narratives uh, became an important part in the Malaysian story, or at least that's what I took away from your mm-hmm. research. So this is sort of returning to the global lessons that we introduced in the start. Could you talk about how Western rhetoric got deployed in Malaysia? Yeah, it was kind of like an odd mix. Like they they capitalize on Trump using the term fake news, but then they used a lot of the fears and concerns of of academics and journalists and kind of combine the two. So the the notion that disinformation is a threat to democracy um, and a threat to national security was cited quite a bit. Um, they would specifically point to certain Western um, outlets like The Economist, for example, um, and say, you know, look, look at what the U.S. is saying. Look at what The Economist is saying. This is clearly a major threat that needs to be dealt with. And so my big takeaway from that was that as researchers, uh, we need to be very careful with using any sort of hyperbolic uh, language um, and really take a step back and think about, okay, what does threat to democracy actually mean? How do we even qualify that, let alone measure it? And to, yeah, take a breath and and say, you know, okay, let's look at what is the actual impact of disinformation before we run in headfirst screaming that it's a threat to democracy. So yeah, as as a researcher, I'm I'm very wary of this. You know, when I I talk to other researchers or journalists, my first question uh, with any disinfo research is always, well, what's the impact? I know it's hard to measure. It's maybe impossible to fully measure, but we really need to think of what are the harms of disinformation and not just disinformation. Like I always say, evidence of activity is not evidence of impact. And we need to be really careful about making that distinction and in some ways tone down um, the use of security language to make a point. You also, you talk about that there's this kind of difficult balancing act in dealing with disinformation in a place like Malaysia or in another country that is governed by a government that is either illiberal or outright authoritarian, Um, that there's a kind of this tension between actually dealing with disinformation that is a problem versus expanding state power and thus threatening civil liberties. So just like talk us through that tension. Yeah, I, it's, I, I think it's a tension that will never go away, to be honest. I think that will always be there. Um, and it's tough. It's like with the interviewees I spoke with, they're clearly affected by, you know, online harassment and disinformation. Um, but at the same time, if the only tool to address it comes from the national security apparatus or law enforcement, then I think, you know, they're making the calculations their head thinking, well, okay, what's, what's the better scenario? What's, uh, what's the trade-off I'm making? So I think that tension will always be there. 
As to how to address it, though, oof, that is the billion-dollar question. If we could come up with the answer to disinformation without government overreach on this podcast, guys, I think we could retire. <laughs> Let's <laughs> do it. That is the goal. That's what we're doing here. We're oh. very disappointed that you don't have an oh. answer. <laughs> Dang. Oh, man. So, yeah, the, the tension's always going to be there. Um, so I think it's important we try to find more creative ways to look at disinformation and influence ops. And again, as I said, as researchers, we need to be careful with, with the claims we're making. You know, if we say something is an actual threat, how, we need to be able to qualify that with great detail and we need to find some way to measure it because otherwise it'll just be capitalized on. So yeah, it's, it's tricky. <laughs> Yes, that's a, that's a good way of summing this entire thing up. It, it, it's pretty tricky. Um, it's so tricky. I, I guess expanding on that, your conclusion at the end of your paper is that, you know, sort of the challenge facing all countries is to respond to legitimate threats of disinformation, harassment and censorship in each national context without conforming to a single global narrative of national security. And so... After studying Malaysia's story in particular in such detail, but also writing a report that was clearly intended to give global lessons to a global audience on it, um, what do you wish that researchers and commentators could do better about discussing disinformation in, in various countries? So I guess another way of putting this is that do we flatten the problem too much when we talk about it as a single global problem? Or do we just sort of focus too much on single countries as well without thinking through global ramifications? Like, how do we sort of walk that tension between acknowledging this is a global issue, um, but also acknowledging that we need to pay attention to things within their particular context? Do you have an idea of sort of how researchers should tackle that task? Yeah. Oh, I feel like you already said it in your question. Um, <laughs> I think we need to do a better job of contextualizing disinformation. There are so many flavors to it. You know, health disinfo is different from political disinfo, is different from online harassment, which is different from extremist uh, recruitment online, you know, and it all gets jumbled up sometimes. Um, I think a lot of it gets painted over with a very broad brush and so I think when we think about disinformation, we really need to situate it in its sociopolitical context and look at where it's coming from, who is disseminating it, why, what are the motivations, and why is the audience receptive? I think there is a, I think sometimes we fetishize the data too much without giving uh, context to it. And I think this is where researchers can really come in and lend a more critical lens to the data as well. But yeah, context is important. Like I said, with the cyber troopers, you know, cyber troopers in the US is very different from cyber troopers in Malaysia. The audience is going to think differently of them. They react differently and they consume their information differently. And I think all of that needs to be taken into account when we study disinformation. So there's there's so much there and I would love to dig into it more. But unfortunately, we're, we're running short on time. So I'll just close with a, a question to to tie us back to current events a little bit. So you mentioned health disinformation. Um, you obviously you researched and wrote uh, this report on Malaysia before COVID-19. Now, in the midst of the pandemic, the World Health Organization has declared that we're also facing a, an infodemic, uh, <laughs> yeah. where there's sort of too much information floating around, yeah. false, potentially harmful. And as a response, social media platforms have been unusually bold in their policing mm -hmm. of that misinformation. So I'm sort of curious to 
how you might be thinking about that in context of your report, like, is there a danger in sort of this giving an opportunity to potentially repressive governments to use uh, the pandemic as an excuse to clamp down further on online speech? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, never one to miss out on a crisis. I think uh, governments around the world, not just in so-called authoritarian or illiberal governments, I think everyone is going to try to exploit the crisis. And I think we've seen already in some countries, governments expanding their power. Um, I can't remember the specifics off the top of my head, but I think Cambodia has done some pretty, has passed some pretty interesting legislation that basically gives the government total control (laughs) over the media. I think Viktor Orban in Hungary has passed some pretty interesting legislation. So yeah, it's not just in Malaysia. I think it's, it's a global situation and it's, it's not isolated to just coronavirus. I think whatever the next crisis is going to be, we're going to see similar, similar trends, but you know, I'm kind of hopeful. I think, I think there's ways to push back. Um, We'll see. (laughs) I, I don't I don't want to be too you know like doom and gloom. I think there's there's always hope. I'm I'm not willing to you know throw everything out yet. All right, well let's leave it there. Gabby, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's mini series on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use, and thanks for listening.